he opens his hand and lets the pieces of the leaf fall to the ground. But I could see that you weren't comfortable, he says. You didn't trust me. That wasn't right. I didn't deserve it. And then pretending you didn't remember. That was clumsy. Anyone would have seen through that. What was I supposed to do? Let it go? How could I? By then, we'd gone too far. You were starting to be afraid of me. You shouldn't have been afraid of me. Underhill gets up from the ground and brushes his hands over the front of his shirt. A cool wind touches his face. The woman doesn't stir. Out in the river, a fish breaks the surface of the water. You shouldn't have been afraid of me, Underhill says again. The woman's camera is lying in the grass where it fell. Underhill lifts it by the strap, swings it back and forth to build momentum, and hurls it out into the middle of the river. He returns to the tree and crouches down. He touches a lock of hair that has fallen over the woman's forehead. He takes her earrings from her ears, takes her wedding band, throws them out into the water. They don't go as far, but it's far enough. He stands on the shore, wondering if there's anything else he should do. This is as much on you as it is on me, he says after a while. I'm not going to feel bad about this. One last look around. His hat is in the grass. He picks it up and puts it on his head and walks away. Chapter 2 18 Months Later If you wandered through downtown Detroit that spring, you saw flyers. You saw them if you went to the Shinola store on Canfield Street or Third Man Records or any sort of hipster hangout. One on every stretch of bare brick wall. You saw them on the campus of Wayne State University and at each entrance to the public library. You saw them in front of the DIA, the Detroit Institute of Arts, taped to the granite base of Rodin's Thinker, at least until the maintenance workers came to peel them off. They were sheets of white paper, eight and a half by eleven, printed with a composite sketch of a man's face, a man wearing a fedora. There were two lines of type above the sketch. The first asked, Have you seen him? The second was an email address. You may have spotted the person who put them up. He would have been carrying a sheaf of them under his arm and a roll of white duct tape. You might have wondered about him. He wore good clothes, but sometimes he wore them carelessly. One sleeve rolled up and one left down. Shirt tails untucked. His hygiene left no room for complaint, but his shaving was haphazard. He moved at his own pace, half a step slower than everyone around him. If you got close enough to see his eyes, you might have suspected he wasn't getting enough sleep. If you tried to engage him in conversation, it would have been hit or miss. He could be friendly, but he might not have the patience for small talk. He was a difficult person to get to know. His name was Jack Pelham. That Tuesday, Jack had one important thing to do and two unimportant things. 
The first unimportant thing was an appointment with Dr. Eleanor Brannan at her office on Selden Street. He arrived twenty minutes late. Dr. Brannan heard his knock and greeted him at the door. She offered him one of the two chairs in the room and took the other. The low table between them held a box of tissues and a vase of spring flowers. Jack moved the vase aside to make room for his stack of flyers. The duct tape went on top. There were pleasantries. Wasn't it a fine, sunny afternoon? It was. Did Jack have any trouble finding the office? None at all. Dr. Brannan opened a file in her lap and put on a pair of reading glasses. You were seeing Dr. Kershaw, she said. Yes. And it turned out the two of you had different styles of communication. Jack settled back in his chair. Is that what he told you?